we won a, a Golden Globe as well. And I literally, I can't believe I did this. I, there was a restaurant I liked going to in LA and the chef, I would sit up on this counter by the chefs and I would talk to the chefs all the time. And they had a blackened chicken sandwich, which I thought was the best sandwich in the world. So I took my Golden Globe and made a new label for it. Best chicken, uh, <laughs> blackened chicken sandwich. And I gave it to them. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. Today's episode is the first half of a two-part interview. I'll be releasing the other half this coming Thursday. And before I tell you about the interview, I just want to tell you a little bit about the story of how this interview came about, because I think it's pretty interesting. So uh, somebody that has meant a ton to me in my life and has impacted me probably more than anybody else in my life, with the exception of my parents, is an amazing man by the name of Wayne Dyer, who passed away this past year. Wayne Dyer is a um, like philosophy spiritual self-help guru who has written tons of books and done tons of presentations and is just an absolutely amazing human being and he like as soon as i read and listened to some of wayne dyer's stuff um there a lot of it is like ideas that i've kind of heard before but i've never heard it spoken in such a way um that just connected with me so much and um it's probably due to wayne dyer that i ended up quitting my job and starting this podcast. So I owe a lot to Wayne Dyer. And I like to tell a lot of people about him, people that I think um, would be into it and would be into his philosophies and ideas. So I, uh, I told a friend of mine here in San Francisco about Wayne Dyer. And that friend of mine it picked up on Wayne Dyer and liked him in the same way that I did. So he then decided to start telling his friends about Wayne Dyer. So about a week after I had introduced him to Wayne Dyer, he was out to dinner with a friend and started telling this friend at dinner about Wayne. And while he was talking with his friend, this gentleman comes up to the table and says, oh, are you guys talking about Wayne Dyer right now? And my friend's like, yeah. And the guy's like, I actually directed a movie with Wayne before Wayne passed away. And my friend was like, no way, that's so crazy. And my friend, being the heads up, smart, nice guy that he is, was like, hey, my friend Blake has a podcast where he interviews people about what they do for a living. Maybe he could interview you about you know, knowing Wayne and directing and stuff like that. And uh, as it just so happens, the person that he was talking to was Michael Gorgian, um, the the person that is in today's episode and Thursday's episode, who not only worked with Wayne Dyer before and is a director, but is an actor and is an actor in one of my favorite movies of all time. It's just such a small world. It's such a crazy thing that that's who it ended up being. So. Michael Gorgian is, in my opinion, like most popularly known for his character Heroin Bob in the movie SLC Punk, which is one of the best freaking movies. It's so, so good. If you haven't seen it, you have to see it. It stands for Salt Lake City Punk. And uh, his character, Heroin Bob, is awesome and is one of the two main characters in the movie. 
Um, Michael Gorgian has had a really long and great acting career. He's won an Emmy. He's won a Golden Globe. Um, he's been in lots of famous things that you would recognize. Um, and then later on in his career, he started getting into directing and has directed several movies, including the movie The Shift with Wayne Dyer. He um, also just finished writing his first book, which will be coming out on Hay House later this year. And it's a fictional story that's being used to um, teach a philosophical like spiritual tale um, so kind of think like a la Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or something like that like this beautiful fictional story that's used to teach these um, big philosophical ideas or discuss these philosophical ideas so I'm really excited to read that book um, anyway so obviously Michael has done a lot of things in his life and he's worked with a hero of mine so we had a lot to talk about so the interview total is about two hours and we talk about a lot of philosophical stuff and a lot of spirituality talk happens in the interview so hopefully that's something that you guys enjoy as well in the first half today um, we talk about his acting career and again there's some philosophy and spirituality sprinkled in there and then on thursday's episode we'll be covering his directing and writing careers and with some more uh, philo- uh, philosophical tidbits as well so without further ado here is actor with michael gorgian michael thanks so much for being on the show man absolutely so I am like more excited to interview you than I have ever been to interview anyone ever. I, oh, please. I, like, I seriously <laughs> cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. I, as we talked about before the interview, Wayne Dyer changed my life more than probably anyone has ever changed my life. And I imagine yeah. he's done that for you know, of hundreds of thousands, if not like millions of people. And sadly he's now passed away so i'll never have the opportunity to speak with him yeah so to have the opportunity to to speak with somebody and pick someone's brain that has worked with him before i'm just thrilled about like i can't believe that this has even happened i will do my best to channel the dire yeah into me while we talk (laughs) totally man totally um so before we get to some of the more philosophical stuff and the wayne dire stuff let's talk about you more um First, let's talk about acting before okay. we get into your directing career. So when did you start acting? Um, at what age? And, and what did your career kind of look like? Well, um, I'll give you the best short version I can. Uh, I grew up in Oakland. Um, I was born in the city in San Francisco and uh, the Presidio when it was a uh, army base. Uh, I was born there. Was your dad in the army? Yeah. Awesome. At the time, he actually, he's a physicist, he, or, well, mathematician, works for NASA. Um, so I grew up in Oakland, and, well, I, let's see, I don't know how, I did uh, some, like, little plays in, as, in grade school, and then uh, when I was in junior high, I went to Claremont Junior High, and it was kind of a rough school, there was a lot of gangs and stuff, and um, they had... Uh, I remember during homeroom, there was an announcement uh, saying that a, a local community theater was uh, auditioning for a play. And if anybody was interested, they were looking for a young boy to be in this play. And if anyone was interested, you could come to the, uh, the office and whatever. I just wanted to get out of class. So I went <laughs> and uh, I ended up getting the part uh, and I didn't. I'm not sure. I don't think I knew this at first, but I eventually learned that the theater company was called the College Avenue Players. 
and it was all senior citizens. And they were doing a play about like generational, you know, uh, relating to old people, young people, that kind of thing. Yeah. It was called Computer Crazy. <laughs> this is back in the Stone Age. Yeah, and, what, uh, what year is this? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's so funny. I don't. I, I, I'm not sure. It was. It was a long, long time ago. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, all the computers are just running like DOS and. Oh my uh, God! No, that we had like the on stage. I remember it was like a cardboard cutout of a thing, and we had slips of paper that we would put into the computer, and then somebody was behind it and would push an, an answer out oh on another gosh. slip of paper. Anyways, so it was. Uh, it was about young people relating to old people. Anyway, that we did the play, uh, and we toured uh, local uh, grade schools. And uh, I remember, you know, we'd do the this play, and it was silly, kind of whatever. And uh, but kids afterwards, you know, fifth graders and sixth grade. I was uh, what was I? I was in uh, eighth grade, I guess, the year before high school. Uh, no, when's high school start? Yeah, eighth grade. Yeah, so you know, young kids would come up after him like, "I want your autograph. Uh, my, uh, you're you're a you're a, uh, a star." Like, okay, <laughs> whatever. So, but it was it was a fun experience until the director came up to me and said, "My God, I got great news. We're gonna do the play at your school." That's terrifying, <laughs> and just <laughs> horrifying. I was like, ah. What? I just saw a guy get stabbed in the elbow with a screwdriver in gym class. <laughs> and you're telling me I'm going to have to get up in front of the entire school with a bunch of old people and do a stupid play. But it was definitely the most terrifying thing I did at that age. Um, and I survived. Um, you know, I, I, it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like a, Thing where everybody applaud you know people were like okay whatever they they kids liked it i remember there was one guy who was kind of one of a kind of a gang guy who uh afterwards talking to him and he was like yeah man i always wanted to be an actor so well um, so anyways i did that and survived it and then from that i ended up going to bishop o'dowd high school and i was lucky enough to start the same year that uh a gentleman named Dennis Colas uh, took over the drama department. It wasn't even a department then. It was he became the drama teacher. And while I was at Bishop O'Dowd, he was very passionate. You know, everybody once in your you 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 have a teacher who goes beyond all the other teachers. Totally. This was one of those people for me. Um, he, I did play after play after play through high school. Um, by the end, by my senior year, we were, we had a, a production that was touring England. I mean, he was, it was very ambitious. And when, when I started, they had like the spring musical and that was it. Um, so I, I learned a lot and, you know, was very passionate about theater at that point and, uh, ended up going to UCLA from there and was in the theater department and was, was there for about two years, and then I started working. I, I booked, uh, um, I think my first job was a TV show called uh, Whole Street High, Whole Street High, something like that. It was lasted half a season, and it was a musical. And this now musicals are popular. Back then, they weren't popular. Yeah. There were no musicals, especially on TV. 
Um, but then I met Kenny Ortega, who directed it, and Kenny Ortega, uh, he went on to he, you know, choreographs Michael Jackson and uh, a lot of big things. But uh, we did a movie called Newsies, and so that was my first sort of big job. Um, and I spent nine months on the back lot of uh, Universal, and it was it was cool because they would never do it now, but back then they actually hired a bunch of us as just uh across the board i was a dancer but they they hired me for nine months total i got a page i mean it was the most regular job you could ever i could ever get you as got an paid actor. for nine months to nine be months dancing in the movie yeah and we would go and for weeks they wouldn't use us but we'd still get paid wow it was great um actually that's where i started getting into directing um one of the guys, this guy, Max Casella, who was on Doogie Howser, uh, he, he had a video camera. Uh, and this is back when like video cameras were you, a VHS tape you like put into the camera. Yeah. And you, so we made a movie called, uh, we're bored. And so we started making a movie behind the scenes called Blood Drips on Newsy Square. And it was a horror film, um, where Don Knotts, uh, do you know who Don Knotts is? Yeah. yeah. He, one of the kids, one of the guys. Sorry, in, but it, just, yeah. you should say anyways. Just uh, Don Knotts, uh, he was on Three is Company, and he was uh, Barney Fife on uh, Andy. How does he? I'm Don Knotts. <laughs> anyway, there was a kid who did a good impersonation of Don Knotts, and so we thought it'd be funny if Don Knotts showed up and wanted to be in the movie, but the director wouldn't let him, and so he went on a killing spree and started killing newsies. And so we started shooting this and we literally shot this film in order. So we would like shoot a shot and then press pause and then shoot another shot. <laughs> and we, but then we shot it over like a period of like a month or so. Because you didn't have access to anyone that could no, edit it for we you. Had no ed- editing wasn't no. like done on your computer. And you we, needed a real yeah, editing. We had a boom box that we'd hold up next to the camera for music. That's how we did music. Yeah. Um, so we, and I remember, yeah, if the, if the camera was off and you turned it back on, there was a seven second delay before it started recording. But if you press pause, it was a three second delay. So <laughs> it, we had all these things figured out. Um, so we shot, shot this thing and everybody, like at first it was like, oh, what are those guys doing? Then eventually everybody wanted to be in it. Christian Bale was in it. Um, Bill Pullman's in it. Uh, Robert Duvall, who's in the movie, he wanted to be in it, but he wasn't on set the day that we were going to do something with him. Anyways, so uh, we made this mock horror film. Um, and that was my first directorial uh, work. That's so awesome. Is there yeah. anywhere that people can watch that uh, nowadays? It's, it's online. Yeah. Uh, actually, there was an editor I worked with later who uh, found it in a box. He found a copy of it in a box I had when I was moving apartments. I left all the stuff in his edit suite. And he was like, you know, there's a lot of people out there who want to see this. So he put it on DVD and he sold it online for a while. Um, but now I think it's, I'm sure, YouTube. I'm sure yeah. you can find it on YouTube. But uh, yeah, so that was my first directing thing. And basically uh, your first, first acting, acting thing. thing. Yeah. Uh, and then, what an incredible first major acting thing. Like, you know, a lot of people, their first acting thing is nothing, you know? Well, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure this is true with other industries. In an interview, I'm going to tell you about all the highlights. 
<laughs> right. Just because that's what we do. Um, but for every job I've booked as an actor, at least a hundred other auditions. Um, you know, I, you, there's so many things that I didn't get or I didn't or didn't work out. So it's these are the highlights. But um, it was a great, definitely a great way to start. Um, and from there, I, I started booking TV jobs and went from one thing to another. Uh, it was on a show called Life Goes On for a long time, or for a season. Um, and then ended up on uh, Party of Five, which I was on for the run of that, um, which was fun. I, you know, I was in my 20s and wanted to do other things and wanted to, like, explain. To me... I didn't even watch TV. I don't even, I don't really watch TV so much now, but back then I was like, I need to like explore the world and do all these things. And so even though it was this wonderful job that a lot of actors would kill for, I was very kind of disgruntled um, and wanted to, you know, I, I would do, do the show and, and then take the money that I made from the show. And I come up back up to Oakland and uh, a buddy of mine and I got a warehouse in East Oakland. Um, it's called the Vulcan. And uh, it's still there. And there's a lot of people that live in it. Back then it was, you know, it's a very art scene kind of thing. A lot of artists and stuff. But we got this warehouse and we built a stage and we had a rope swing and we had a uh, a secret room and like we had cargo nets up in the rafters that you could climb up into. And, um, and we'd throw big parties there and have, uh, bands play and um, and then I would make weird movies uh, and that kind of became a habit that grew but I basically would go to LA uh, do some acting make some money come up here and then with my friends make crazy weird movies yeah um, that's such an early early 20s thing I mean first of all <laughs> it's like I'm sure that as a as an actor in your early 20s it's like well but am I really being true to my artistic self being in, you know, party of five or what? Like, yeah, that's great and everything. But how artistic is that? Yeah. And uh, there's just such like that, that inner turmoil of your inner 20s. It's like people talk about, you know, being a teenager and having like inner turmoil. I feel like it's almost more so in your early 20s when you're trying to like find yourself, find what totally. you're, you're all about. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, when you're in your early, you can do crazy stuff, you know? And I, I think I even feel like someone told me this or something, but like the first film I made, it was called Lieber Knox. And it was a, a dream of a guy going crazy. And then he found this dream world. It was the weirdest movie you've ever seen in your <laughs> life. But I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to make this later in life. Now's the time to make <laughs> to be weird, yeah. to do to experiment. It's really um, good that you had the foresight of that because yeah. a lot of people don't have that foresight and then they have a midlife crisis right. later because they're like, right. shit, I didn't do all the things, uh, things I could have done when I was younger. Right. But it is a, a, a trade-off because um, one of the things, so I've been an actor, direct, I've uh, direct, uh, circus everyone we can talk about that later um i'm now writing wonderful oh mr artsy guy who does all these different things but um i didn't focus on one thing and when you don't focus on one thing it's much harder yeah. to get ahead and move along because like as an actor you know you 
it's you're as good as your last job kind of thing. It's that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, sticking with one thing, there's uh, there's a lot of value in that. Um, so exploring is great, but also having something you stick with and really sticking with it is also important. So it's a trade-off. It's yeah, trade-off. absolutely. Like all things. Yeah. Um, talk about winning an Emmy. You won an Emmy when you were 23, right? Yeah, yeah. So Did that make some sort of kind of major shift for you in the way that jobs were getting offered to you? Kind of. Not really. I yeah, I won an Emmy for a thing called David's Mother. It was with Kirstie Alley and uh Bill Pol not Bill Pullman, who was in it. Um uh I can't a bunch of different people. And me. Um <laughs> and me, that's the important yeah, part. Yeah. I was in it. Um and uh yeah, well, the more exciting was at the Emmys, I was up against I was it was best supporting actor in a um television movie or series or television movie or miniseries. And that year there was a lot of, there was a thing on HBO called the band plays on and there were a lot of major stars in it and they were all in smaller roles. And so in my category, it was, um, uh, Ian McKellen, uh, Richard Gere, Matthew Broderick. Um, was it Matthew Modine? Uh, Alan Alda, and me. Damn. It's <laughs> like so, a murder as well. That's uh, yeah, crazy. Yeah. So, uh, I can't believe you beat out Ian McKellen. Uh, I almost don't like you anymore. I know. I love Ian I McKellen. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was, uh, they cut, well, who knows? I, I won. That was great. It was very nice. Um, I, you know, I was uh, so contrary back then. Um, I was happy about it, but I also, also was kind of like, eh, so it's an award. Big deal. Um, I, it definitely, you know, winning awards and all that is, it's, now I look back and I go, man, I should have taken more advantage of it, you know. Um, but I, uh, I went, I was doing Party of Five at the time and, and got other uh, jobs uh, around that time. But I just, I wasn't happy. Um, I enjoy acting. I love acting. I, I still do. But I think it was for me that, um, the content of what I'm doing meant a lot. I didn't want to just do things that were entertaining. Entertainment is wonderful, um, but I I felt like I needed to participate in putting out things into the world that had a deeper something to them. Um, uh, So that, that kind of, haunted me a lot during that period of my life. And that's why I ended up coming back to the Bay area, even though I would, I mean, I, I live on Southwest flying back and forth all the time. Uh, that feeling that you had, did that come before or after finding Wayne and other like interesting philosophical, spiritual people? Well, um, did finding those people and reading their books support the ideas and thoughts you were already having or did reading them then make you think like, am I really doing something that's fulfilling? Um, I've always been interested in philosophical things and, uh, science was kind of, I would say one of my first loves, although I kind of rebelled against science because my father's a scientist and I didn't want to do the same thing he did. Of course. Um, but art 
and science um and from there moving into philosophy um i kind of had an appetite for knowing you know what's this all about why am i here what's uh i can play along and do what i'm supposed to do and and even you know to be an artist that's rebelling that's going against the grain but even that to me was kind of like yeah but what i'm i'm playing a role on tv pretending yeah. to make out with someone why what's the point of all this what's uh, and so i uh yes i mean i uh wayne i met much later but uh from a very early age i started reading you know anything i could get my hands on from psychology to um uh philosophy uh, was a big thing uh, i studied a lot of religions it's interesting because i'm you know i'm a little older than you but we live in a strange time where 100 years ago you could believe in a religion and hey there's your answers there they are you know, maybe the nun beats you up or whatever, but at least you have answers. Mm -hmm. Then science comes along. Science is wonderful, lovely, but it uh, leaves a lot of things kind of, as a human being, I'm kind of not in the picture anymore. Yeah. I get erased. What's, who am I, how do I fit into an endless universe? Uh, you know, all this stuff. Where Where's my place in that? Uh, so to have, to be born in an era where you have a scientific mindset, or outlook, um, there's a, a hole in me There's that needs to be filled, and religion ain't doing it anymore, Yeah, at least for me. There's a lot of people, I mean, bless the people that are devout in whatever religion, I envy. Dude, I, I li you're <laughs> like, it's like my words coming out of your mouth right now. I've oh, yeah. said that same thing so many times. I totally agree with you. And it, we're not unique. I mean, it's the era we're in. It's the, we have a, society that can do so many, especially now technology we do so many amazing things and incredible things outwardly but inwardly how much have we developed from 100 years ago 200 years ago inwardly you know uh okay there's psychology and and i but everything's geared towards the outside what can i do in my life what how can i make and build and um so i I had that hunger uh, to know why am I alive? Yeah. And um, it's so difficult because, as you said, you have this this piece that's like missing. This uh, something that's pulling you towards this this extra piece of spirituality, if you want to call it that, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And yet, if you are also scientifically inclined or care about that at all yeah you're really skeptical of everything all the time absolutely and you see all these uh these things that get proposed in science that hold up for about 50 years and then we realize that oh that actually wasn't that true and now we're going to change that again right. it's um it's hard to subscribe to any sort of religion or faith or you know whatever it is right and the, the difficulty is is that they're two different two different languages <laughs> Um, that's the thing I've I've come to understand more as I've gotten older. Um, in studying religion um, and the different religions, I, I and to see them as it's not a they're not talking about the same thing as science. You can't go, oh well, you know, the Bible says 
this and that's crazy because how could that be true when we know that the planet does this? It's two different languages. Mm-hmm. One is of the heart and one's of the mind. And and for when you start to look at sacred texts um, and understand that this is coded, it's 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 metaphor, and start to read them the same way you would read myth, Greek myths, and go, what's in here? Suddenly, and, and this is easy for me to say because I didn't grow up in a Catholic school with priests molesting me or anything. There are a lot of people that have a reaction, strong reaction against religion. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely, that's their, they, you know, it's absolutely valid because religion as an institution has done a lot of horrible things, but what's at the heart of all these religions, Buddhism, all of these religions, there's incredible stuff there. And if to look at it from this other perspective of, like Greek myth, you can find amazing things that can feed that same thing. At the same time, it's slightly different because I don't believe in it wholeheartedly. I still have a scientific outlook. I still have this skeptical thing that allows, you know, I can only go so far. Um, I think it's interesting. I'm really happy that what you said about the missing piece within you and the pull that you feel and stuff like that, because I think, and and kind of the difference between science and religion, I think that a lot of people in a younger version of myself would have believed that religion was always just an effort to explain things, why things were happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And and before we really had science, you know, that we were just trying to explain like, that uh, Apollo is pulling the sun and his chariot across the sky. And okay, we're trying to make up these reasons. But I think that that is such a secondary affect of religion, having, mm-hmm. having those sorts of things that the, that the reason that throughout history, everyone has some sort of thing that they believe in some sort of deity or deities um, like native Americans, Mayans, whoever, like ancient Greeks, Romans, is not so that they have a person that they should can worship, but because there is this like innate feeling inside of you. These other stories get made up as just you know part part of the whole thing. But the main thing is fulfilling this 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 piece and this thing inside of you that you that clearly there's something there like that that everyone that's ever lived on the earth kind of does feel that same pull that you're talking about. Right. Well. A lot of it has to do with a separation that's happened. And, you know, we don't want to necessarily have the whole thing about philosophy, but the separation uh, between self and the world around you, that's something that, um, how do you contend with that? That's, that's, you know, you could bring that back to Descartes and the mind-body problem and the split between basically at that point the, they went, okay, science, you get the outside world, and religion, you get the inside world. Um, and they separated them. And so now we go, okay, well, how do I, uh, this disconnect between what's inside me and what's outside, that's the problem. That's the, how do I contend with that? And with religions, um, th- yes, they were you know, a lot of stuff like trying to explain things that science, science has got a better, you know, does the job. But it also, it, within it, is, is showing and, and giving insight into what is the placement of 
the relationship between a human, a human, what is, what is a human being? What, what am I in relationship to all this? What is the connection between the two things? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a mystery, you know, you, there's a lot of, you could have this theory or this religion, that, a lot of explanations, but the explanations almost are secondary. It's the questioning, the state of questioning it, and the state of wonder. That's really, now that's where you, religion is, is way, you know, is doing a lot more than science. Science, at the root of science, also has wonder. The beginnings of why, in scientific inquiry, like, why is the stars? But then once we start explaining it and start getting answers and deducing it and analyzing it, often what happens, that root of wonder goes away, gets lost. One of my favorite things that, and it's not his quote, but that I heard Wayne Dyer say one time, and I don't remember who it is that he's quoting, but he says, sell your cleverness and purchase bewilderment. And like, that's yeah. so true because as a, as a young man, like I thought, oh, there's always good, like the smarter that I can be and the more answers that I can figure out, like that's going to make me feel better. And it's the exact opposite. When yeah. you just look up at the stars and you're not thinking about them as, wow, that's this ball of gas that's this hot. And that they, these things are, it, when you're just looking up and you're just Ooh. in sheer awe of these, this beauty that's in front of you right now. That is like the purest form of being a person on this planet. And then does the rest of that even really matter? Like, it's good to know, you know, but it, uh, mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's irrelevant. Well, what you, you know, there, you're, you're getting in touch with something that doesn't participate in your life all, as much as it should, which is something that isn't answered, like the, you know, the, everything that's put upon you as you that you accumulate over your life of your name and your job and your credit card number and your this and your, all this stuff that is this story of you that's kind of built up around you, that ends up being who you are. Well, that's not really who you are. That's, that's, that's um, the exterior of what's your, what you are. But there's another part of you that we lose touch with, we forget about. And what is that part? Well, you know, we get glimpses of it. There's an earthquake. Suddenly, the way we're interacting, the way we're seeing things around us, it's a whole new, whoa, uh, you know, my, somebody close to me passes away, or not even tragically, it could be your moment of great beauty. You see something, you see a piece of art that really changes, you know, opens you up, or your child is born, or, you know, these are little glimpses of this other part of us that we don't isn't participating yeah. in our lives. That should be there so yeah. much more often and so much more present. Yeah. So how, you know, to cultivate that in a cl- today's climate where science and technology and you have all these things that are amazing parts of our exterior world, but we have very little that supports this inner something that's, you know, it's an infant inside of us that needs to, needs to grow, but can't. So. Yeah. Um, so anyways, not to <laughs> veer off course too far. No, yeah. But dude, that's I, like... I, you know, I, uh, as an artist, art for most people, you know, there's the whole fame and ego side of it. But, you know, anybody that really cares about what they're doing artistically, it's religion. It's, re- it's a religious, you know, a, a spiritual path. 
and and so for me making uh stuff on, doing things on TV that were perpetuating ideas and and basically just selling a product we're, you know what, what are we doing we're just selling the the sponsor we're to me it wasn't enough i couldn't i couldn't hang just having be, my life be about that yeah um now i must say i'm a very different stage of my life and doing different things i've gone back to acting i'm going to be on what code black uh, in a couple of weeks i loved it it was so much fun it's so much fun to act when it's not the whole of my being it's not all of who i am yeah uh when you're not looking for a purpose in it when yeah. you're just letting it be what it is yeah it's that's that's the difference that's that was the shift for me is is now i can i can have i can play around because my the thing at least as an artist that i really wanted to do or or put my life into i found what that is and I'm, that's uh, mostly has to do with my book um but now that i have that it's easier to play and and not be so serious and you know like in my 20s being snobby about being on a tv show and like i was bad, like i would i we won a, a golden globe as well and i literally i can't believe i did this i there was a restaurant i like going to in la and the chef, I would sit up on this counter by the chefs, and I would talk to the chefs all the time. And they had a blackened chicken sandwich, which I thought was the best sandwich in the world. So I took my Golden Globe and made a new label for it, best chicken, uh, <laughs> blackened chicken sandwich, and I gave it to them. <laughs> I imagine that's probably still at that place. Is that place still around? No, they refused. They took. It, they kept it for a week, and then the owner was like, "You can't do it. You're young and stupid. Take this back." That's, <laughs> wow, what a nice guy. So then man. it became a, a doorstop for my mom for a while. And, yeah. That's anyway, cool, so... Golden Globe that gets around. Yeah. Um, so I, I will just catch us up to, to, uh, to directing and Wayne so we can talk about that. Uh, well, here, hang on. But, but yeah. Before we get there, just one, uh, one last acting thing I want to touch on because that was what I knew you from and what I think a lot of people probably know you from is SLC Punk. Was oh, like, yes, of course. I think SLC Punk is one of the greatest freaking movies ever. I like there was a period of time in my life where I was really into watching movies and I there were certain films that I would just watch over and over and over and over again and SLC Punk was one of those movies and I knew a lot of people in college who watched SLC Punk a lot too. Like that it just had this like cult following yeah, when I was total in college. Cult film. And so first of all, what is it like to be a main actor in a cult film <laughs> and to be like so recognized for a specific character is that it, are there good parts to that or is it all just kind of weird when people are like hey heroin bob and you're just like dude that was like a decade ago what's wrong with you <laughs> no no i i have so many different hats i wear i don't i love it i uh yeah well man well one thing i don't have a mohawk in my life so not a lot of people recognize me as heroin but sometimes they do but a lot of times they and i'm much older but uh um that was a an incredibly special film um you know I, talking about philosophy and stuff the guy who wrote it and directed it james Marandino, he's not your average dude um incredibly smart and part of the reason i think that film hit People, when, when it came out in theaters, it didn't do well. It was barely in theaters for a week. 
but then it became this tape everybody in college would pass around or whatever. It built this huge cult following, and I think it's because of a couple things. One, punk, yeah, people are into punk, great. It's not that. It's because there is underneath that a layer of, he studies philosophy, James is a big philosophical guy too, it hits a chord because of what it's trying to, it's struggling with. It's struggling with the same thing we were just talking about. This, who am I? I mean, that's ultimately, you know, what is punk? Is it fashion? Is it music? Is it this? Is it none of that? It's a a longing. It's a fucking longing inside. Yeah. That is the same, you know, it's no different from uh, some of the stuff I, you know, the deep philosophical things I'm reading. I mean, that film embodies it, embodies it in a way. Um, So I think because of that, that's why it, it became a cult film is because it's yeah it's cool there's you know guys with uh cool clothes and and cool music the music's good and and it's funny it's you know he's got a wicked sense of humor uh and stylistically you know filmmaking wise he was doing cool stuff with it um no i think you're spot on why underneath it all the the characters are so interesting and unique if it was just a whole bunch of like regular punk people running around right um i mean that would be one thing but it's not it's not that way at all you can like actually there's this like tangible angst in so much of the characters and in the conversations that they have Mm -hmm. and those things that you talk about are actually discussed between the characters in the film of like why are you dressed like that like do you need to dress like that and isn't it kind of not punk rock of you to be like (laughs) aren't you then not rebelling if you're trying to rebel and then there's um what's his name jason what uh jason Jason siegel's character who is like mike the quote-unquote the most punk rock guy out of all oh yeah he's straight yeah looks you know he wears like polo shirts and glasses and then he decides that he's gonna go and study botany Uh, um and it's like that's such like a sharp contrast to the other people who are more who are trying to be punk more right and all of that stuff there's nothing better than when there's something that you can do uh, physically in life that gives you these philosophical thoughts by doing the actual action or you mentioned like life experiences like watching a child be born or something mm-hmm. like a lot of people like us you know will try to like talk things out or think things out philosophically right. but it's best when it's it's not so um in clearly your head. stated and yeah. when it like something like that movie like all that stuff is just there under the surface mm-hmm. for you to think about these things, but it's not like in your freaking face. You well, know? and to feel them. That's the thing is, I mean, so much of with art and good art is it's about, um, uh, you know, there's definitely part of art that's mental, but with film, especially or storytelling, it's how do you bypass the mind and get to somebody's heart, make them feel something. That's what, you know, a lot of art is trying to do. And so with what you're saying, absolutely. You know, there's all this stuff going on and everything, but it's something else is bypassing and, and getting hitting people, yeah. you know. So, I, yeah, I, it's, it's a great film. I'm very proud to be in it. You know, uh, there are a lot of people running around with tattoos of me on them. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah, a little scary, but. Uh, For all the fans like myself, like crazily enough there's now going to be a sequel to this movie you made like now and yeah. further crazily enough 
your characters in it, which for those that haven't seen the original <laughs> SLC Punk, I guess I won't say why that's so crazy. Oh, uh, you can say. Okay, yeah. yeah well, because in order to talk about the new movie, we'll have to yeah. talk about that. But so you die in the first movie, which is so sad. And yeah, uh, what's his name? Matthew. Um, Matt Lillard. Matthew Matt Lillard. Lillard. Man, yeah. that scene when you die, like that is a phenomenal acting job. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, you're in this new movie because it surrounds your son, uh-huh. Uh, that uh, I guess was born after your death. And w- what is like the character that you play? Is it like your son is having dreams of you or you're just throughout <laughs> the movie, like little spots of you? Um, I think it's fair. When, when's this uh, podcast? Yeah, I could say. Why not? <laughs> James, if I'm ruining the movie, you can sue me. <laughs> um, no, I narrate it. Oh, God, that's great. <laughs> I narrate it from, from uh, Purgatory or Punk limbo or whatever (laughs) so i'm the narrator of the film so uh yeah it's about this the kid i have and his friends and it's a whole it's a whole movie see you can't make a a part two to slc punk i mean slc punk is what it is so this is it's a totally different movie and it just happens to be narrated by me and there's some of the original characters from the first movie uh that stuck around in Salt Lake City. So Devin Sawa and uh, um, uh, James D- Jimmy Duvall. So Devin Sawa, who did he play? He was uh, he was the guy with the green green hair and the yeah. gloves. The guy that like, like fried on acid. Yeah, too hard yeah. And tripped out too many. Yeah. So he's in it. He's a, he's like an attorney or something now. Uh, or no, he's a prosecutor. Um, and uh, Jimmy Duvall, who was. Uh, uh, the mod yeah. guy, he's in it. Um, he so, looks like he's only aged like one year. I, I oh, watched yeah. the trailer and like he looks almost identical. Uh, yeah, that dude's looking yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a buff buff guy, muscle guy. For that matter, you only look like you've aged like a year. So I, I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, a very it's a totally different story, different movie. Um, it premieres, I guess it's going to do one of these things where it um, premieres in theaters. Uh, there's like events that go on. February, February 11th, there's all these screenings in different cities. Wow, that's soon. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm going to go to the... So long as that thing after it's in theaters, uh, if the rights get sold to Netflix, that thing is going to be like one of the most watched things of the year. Hopefully that happens for people. I... I, I don't know anything about the whole entire Netflix financials and what, what makes things on Netflix and not. But like, right. I mean, how Wet Hot American Summer came back and put those episodes on Netflix. Like, uh-huh. there's no better idea than that, you know, because right. now millions and millions and millions of people, which I mean, it's a cult film like it's uh, you kind of need to like you know, make it Reba- easily accessible for people. Mm-hmm. And nowadays what you were talking about, people buying a DVD and passing it around like that ain't going to happen, you right. know? So right, right. you got to uh, find a way. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm sure they have some distribution model in mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so, yeah, we'll see how it goes. I, uh, it was fun, a lot of fun. That's cool, man. Uh, getting to, it took a while, like when we shot, boy, try to recreate a character you created uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Wild. Uh, all right, so now let's talk about okay, the okay, directing okay. and stuff so, like that. So I looked on your IMDb and it looked like... Hey everyone, it's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, 
and I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby, I should totally be on this show, then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.